This is an ABC podcast. I regularly see miracles. <gasps> Things that absolutely would have made me believe in magic. If I didn't see them on the internet. What the Duck is back in your ears with the answers to things you never even thought about asking, like, which way do snail shells curl? Good question. And, well, to understand that properly, we first need shells 101. Shells? They're made by animals. Not all animals, obviously. Amy Prendergast is a senior lecturer at the School of Geography, Earth and Atmospheric Sciences at the University of Melbourne. I'm a massive shell nerd. Her words, not mine. Most of the time when we think about shells, we're thinking about mollusk shells. And so these can be usually either gastropods, which are the coiled shells like snails, or they can be bivalves, so shells that have two parts or valves connected together. So things like oysters, clams, pipis and mussels. And so technically shells are things called calcareous exoskeletons. I've never really clocked that, you know, that shells are acting like a, an internal skeleton does for us. It gives the animals protection and a sort of form to their soft bits. And so the whole process of shell growth is called biomineralization. Baby mollusks hatch from those tiny eggs and they start building their shells layer upon layer from the time they hatch and they continue to grow throughout their whole life. And so they grow their shells by essentially getting chemicals from the surrounding sea, such as calcium and oxygen, as well as proteins, which they get from their own bodies to build the shells. The growth of the shells is controlled by a part of the mollusk called the mantle. This is kind of the soft squidgy bit that you'll see poking out of shells sometimes. And so the mantle secretes this fluid called the extrapallial fluid. And this fluid contains the building blocks that the shell needs to build itself. So this is essentially calcium, carbon and oxygen. And from these elements, a shell is born. And it often outlives the animal that built it. You've literally got a skeleton collection on the edge of your bath, Nana. But how is it that snails can sometimes create those awesome shapes in their shells? Long, thin spirals or short, squat squirrels? When it was a baby, its little baby self is a little tiny, tiny bit that's often broken off on the very top or spire of that shell. Jan Vendetti is the Associate Curator of Malacology at the Natural History Museum of Los Angeles County. And then it grows and it grows and it's as if your fingernail was growing, but not from the base, but from the tip. Like it's just continuing to grow and continuing to grow. It's called continuous growth. But as it's growing, it's making this coil and it's taking up space in coiling. So its body is inside this coiling structure. It sort of looks like a coiling ice cream in an ice cream cone. If you think about it like that, that very tip is the spire. That's what we call it. So starting off tiny and skinny, the internal circumference of the shell increases to match the size of the animal as it grows. It makes its own perfect home. And some snails will just make that coil, but instead of pulling out that spire, now imagine that it's sort of like a spring, sort of like a conical spring, and now you can push that conical spring in and flatten it out. This is how evolution works. It's variations on a theme of how to make an animal fit into a coiled cone. And this is why you get some swirling shells that are flat, like across the palm of your hand, 
and some that are party hat shaped and then some that are Christmas tree shaped and you get the picture. Each species has the perfect amount that it likes to stretch its coil out. And in some cases, as it goes swirling out, the snail creates the inverse shape on its underside. It swirls in. So that also, in some snails, creates this hole in the bottom that is called the umbilicus. So it's this open space. And if you were to look at it, it looks like the, the threads of a screw inside. I actually came across Jan Vendetti on a Twitter post, and it showed just her hands in a video. One hand had a long, pointy, swirling shell, and one had a flat swirling shell. It's called a sundial shell, the flat one. Uh, it's got a good scientific name. It's called Architectonica Perspectiva, and the more spired white shell is called Thatcheria mirabilis, and its common name is the Japanese wonder shell because it's so stepped and uh, remarkable. It's a a gorgeous snail. They're both beautiful snails. In the video, she puts them together like a screw top lid on a water bottle, the outie in the innie of the other, and they twist together as if they were manufactured by an engineer. What happens very basically is that two shells interlock. They sort of twist together. One is kind of like a screw and it screws into this shell that has an open space. So the spire of one shell fits into the umbilicus of the other. The innie of one fits the outie of the other. Is this the evidence that humanity finally needed for intelligent design? Nah. I tell people it is a trick It's like a math trick, and it it has to do with math. It has no biological significance for the organism, so the snails aren't ever naturally twisting themselves into that orientation. It's impossible for them to do. They don't live in the same ocean. In fact, these two species come from almost as far apart as you could imagine in the world. They're not from the same environment. They would never see each other. There'd be no way for them to do that. They're not mating. They're not getting to know each other. They're... It's just a product of the particulars of coiling that one is making a space and one is leaving a space that just coincidentally happened to fit. So a malacologist in the UK named Peter Dance is the gentleman from which I learned this trick. So it was in a book that he wrote about shells and snails and collections And I don't know how he discovered it. I think maybe after many years of looking at shells, he thought, these two look like they might fit. So maybe they do, and he tried it. Once I read this, I was like, well, that sounds fun. We have both of those species in our collection. I walked to our collection, opened the drawers, pulled them out. The first two I tried, they fit. It looks like magic. They are so perfect. But why is it that they have the exact inverse shape of each other? Remember how before Jan was telling us, as snails go on building their swirling shells, they're moving upwards and outwards? Well, each of those swirls has a little area of overlap and it leaves a ridge. Like the threads on a screw. Any two snails in which there's an umbilicus or an opening and a complementary but coincidentally sized spire, those two are very likely to fit together. 
So this is a totally, this is a different species than I used um, in that video, but just in preparation for today, I pulled it out thinking, you know, it's really got a good spire. I wonder if it would work and it works too. And it fits very, very tightly. So it's coincidence and math and evolution and awesomeness and variation. And this has been mapped out. It was back in 1966 with a paleontologist called David Raup, who the Academy of Sciences in the USA said was one of the most influential paleontologists of the second half of the 20th century. Now, he wasn't interested in digging up bones. He was interested in answering questions about why these species go extinct, but those do not. And in the case of the swirly-shelled mollusks, he came up with an equation of sorts that explained every single iteration of shell coiling that would be possible on Earth. It's called Raup's Parameters, and let me, a person with absolutely no math skills, try to explain. Imagine a cube. You have the width, the depth and the height, and changing any of those parameters will give you a different sized cube. You can imagine the sliding scale. So, in the case of swirly shells, imagine a graph of X and Y, where X is the height of the shell and Y is the radius. And I'm simplifying here because the actual parameters are a little bit more complicated than that. But then, introduce another parameter. Let's call it H for how much your internal hole is expanding at each revolution. So change any one of those parameters, you change the shell. So yeah, the, I guess the best way I could say it is that think of a coiling pipe cleaner and just change the dimensions. Pull it, make it coil out and wide, make it coil tight and long. And then within those parameters, you can have many variations. And natural selection through many hundreds of millions of years of snail evolution has played around with these different shell shapes. And we have 75,000 or so species of snail alive today that are the survivors, that are the species that lived and they have these different shell shapes. So by labeling and measuring those parameters, Raup could say this is every possible spiral shell shape on Earth. But the thing is, the X and Y axis creates a graph. Add another axis and you have a cube-shaped graph with results spread out within that cube. All the natural shells that have been measured in the world are squashed into little groups in a couple of corners of the cube. Nature has excluded a whole heap of potential swirls. Yep, unoccupied uh, morphospace. Why is it and has it ever been occupied before? And all of those shells through their couple hundred million year length of time on Earth had various shapes. Some were sort of shaped like a spring with a loose long coil, some like a massive brass horn. They look fantastical. One question is, is it because they had such eccentric shell shapes? Was that part of their demise? Are there biomechanical limits to the shapes that are actually possible to live in? But it could even be that they were, when we look at geologic timescales, they persist for hundreds of thousands of years and sometimes longer. So it's not like we have this, you know, soapbox to stand on to say like, oh, look how poorly adapted they are. We've been around for, you know, 200,000 years, maybe. So as modern as humans, 
Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting thought. Incredible. In the past, all sorts of swirls and whirls were tried out, but what we've been left with fits into like a, a third of what is actually possible. Rolp's rule doesn't control the swirl of the shells. It's simply the mathematical expression of swirling possibilities. But the big question remains, which way does a snail shell coil? Is this sort of like the toilet water in the Northern Hemisphere that swirls around the wrong way? You know, you'd think maybe they'll coil one way, maybe they'll coil the other way, you know, maybe the ratios will change, but in fact it's, it's really quite fixed. Most snails are right coiling, which means that when you look at a shell facing you with the aperture or the open part facing you, it is on your right. And that's called dextral chirality, so that's clockwise. Or you can have the shell coiling towards the left, anti-clockwise, and that's called sinistral chirality. And basically, it's really interesting that these days, most modern shells that have a coil have dextral chirality. But this hasn't always been the case. So throughout the fossil record, you actually find that shells shift between dextral and sinistral chirality. And I guess scientists don't really know why. It's interesting that basically all shells of the same species will have the same chirality. And they think that's because it'll be easier for shells to mate if they basically coil the same way. Yeah, it'd be hard to get your bits in the right positions. Your bits. <laughs> to have a successful, right. yeah. have a successful yeah. go. But there are entire species that are left coiling. Sometimes there's a gene that mutates and boom, the shell curls the other way. So that would mean that the mutations within that species would be right coiling. And so it's scientists from a university in Japan who identified this one gene that like essentially switched on or off the dextral chirality. And so, so using CRISPR, you know, the gene editing technology, they edited out a gene called LSDIA1 and they found that the mollusk coiled in the opposite direction. And the link that they made with humans is that they think that it might be a similar gene involved in humans are sometimes born with their organs on the opposite side to what we normally have. It's beautiful. Maybe at some point you had a sluggy sort of great, 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 great grandmother with a gene for leaning to the left. And while we're on mathematical and biological gorgeousness, have you heard of a Fibonacci sequence? It's a really kind of special pattern that you find in nature. So you find it in things like the swirls of galaxies, like our Milky Way, also the swirl of a cyclone. It's the same kind of pattern that you find within a shell. And so the logarithmic spiral is that each coil is wider by the next by a constant factor. And this kind of pattern has like inspired People like Leonardo da Vinci in creating the Mona Lisa, Frank Lloyd Wright in creating the spiral staircase in the Guggenheim Museum. So it's pretty special. Yeah, there's something about it that we also are completely attracted to and find just intrinsically beautiful. Yeah, there's kind of an element of, of perfection about it, right? For Amy, and a whole heap of researchers around the world, they'd actually argue that the gastropods with the perfect swirling ratios are not the most interesting thing in the shell world. They're after bivalves. Think clams and pippies. 
nowhere near as flashy as the swirly boys. But get this, they hold within their shell the world's history. The thing that is even cooler is the fact that they not only grow these shells, but they deposit them incrementally, so layer upon layer, and the increments form with regular periodicity. And so essentially they form regular annual growth layers each year, but within these annual growth layers, you can also see these finer growth lines, which are daily or even tidal growth increments. And so if you pick up a shell from the beach, All those little lines that you see on the shell, they might be their daily growth lines and the kind of deeper grooved lines are their annual growth lines. You could basically count how long a shell has lived by looking at its outer surface. Sometimes it's not so reliable, so we tend to section them and look at their microstructure a little bit more to work this out, but you can really look at a shell on the beach and get an idea of how old it is. And this leads me to Melbourne University, where Amy Prendergast has promised to show me some shells that will take my breath away. And she wasn't joking. You promised a big old shell, and that is a big old shell. The room is like your high school science lab. It even smells like it. But on a table right near the door is a huge clamshell. Like, it could make a shell bra for King Kong's girlfriend. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. People used to think that they ate people as you went past them and all that kind of thing. But, you know, they're really just really, really big bivalves that, you know, attach themselves to the reef and live for a long time. This shell would take maybe three adults to move it. It's an absolute whopper. And it'll soon be giving up some secrets that it holds within its layers because Amy and her colleagues are going to cut that baby open. We haven't sectioned it and counted all its growth increments yet, but we think it lived for probably at least 50 years. Even, oh well, correct me if I'm wrong, my untrained eye, I can see lines in them. They're the growth increments you're talking about. They're the growth increments. And so with a lot of shells, you see annual lines, just like you see in dendrochronology with tree rings, you see annual rings. But in this particular one, you can see annual ones, but you can also see daily growth lines. What? And it's, you know, it's been a This a level of detail is astonishing. Amy shows me tiny, incredibly sharp saws for cutting fine strips of shells, drills with pin-like bits that you use under a microscope. There's even mass spectrometers to analyse the chemistry of what has happened at any point that that shell is alive. And all of these tools are used to make a timeline of shell history, trying to get the shells to overlap in time backwards and backwards and backwards. But how long does a humble mussel live? Well, actually, potentially longer than you do. Uh, Some might say it has a very tedious life. (laughs) Dr Paul Butler is a researcher at the University of Exeter who studies, among other things, the life of one of the longest-lived organisms on Earth. And I suppose it's it's quite an ordinary-looking shell. Rude! But he's talking about... Arctica Islandica, and one in particular called Hafron, an Icelandic term for mystery of the ocean. Well, we collected it in 2006. An unsuspecting-looking palm-sized clam. It was one of the ones we collected live. They sometimes use divers to collect the shells or even dredges when the water is deep. And we only found out later that it was incredibly long-lived. Understatement of the last five centuries. 
So it had been living for just over 500 years, so essentially since the year 1500. So Hafron was spawned around the same time that the Incan Empire was taking its last gasps before the conquest by the Spaniards. That is quite a while back. And Hafron was on Earth throughout the transatlantic slave trade, and Marie Curie and Harold Holden, the alleged pygmy submarines, the invention of Vegemite, the 2000 Sydney Olympics. All of this happened while Hafron sat nestled into the sandy bottom of the ocean near Iceland, taking notes on the climate using the only instrument it had to hand, its shell. This is the longest lived one we've found. We found several others that lived for 300 or 400 years. The, the longer they live, the better it is from the point of view of the chronology, um, because it obviously it means that you can go further back in time with fewer shells. And in fact, we can go back 1,300 years for those waters off the north of Iceland. Wow. 1,300 years ago, the Tang Dynasty was powerful in China, Vikings were still marauding, the Mayans were still going strong, and Paul only needs just a couple more shells. We're back to the Immaculate Conception people. And what do these shells tell us about the climate? Essentially, it confirms what everything else does. You know, we can see evidence of warming. It seems to show a fairly flat ocean temperatures up to around 1850, followed by a noticeable increase, which is what you'd expect to see, because we know that modern warming kicked in around that time. One word, industrialisation. It's like these shells are sort of nature's historian, or no, nature's archive in a way, aren't they? Yes. Holding the data for us. They absolutely are, yeah. yeah. It strikes me you're a bit yeah, of a bivalve yeah. sort of biographer or something like that. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's a brilliant record. You tend to forget that most people don't know about it. But astoundingly, there's even more stories that these shells can tell. We're back at the labs at Melbourne Uni with Amy Prendergast, who's showing me a pile of shells shaped like small versions of Mount Fuji. These are the shells she worked on for her PhD. So I looked at limpets. Ooh, these are these little see, things recognize that you. suck onto the rocks. You find them all over the world. And suck on so incredibly strongly, it's like, yeah, good luck. You're never going to get me off. Yeah, exactly. They actually like dissolve a little part of the rock. No. And then, yeah, so it's called their home scar. So that's why you see those little ridges yeah. on the rocks. Yeah, and then they have an incredibly like muscular foot that just sucks down. But these are not local limpets. They're from Libya. Libyan limpets, where you can still find live Libyan limpets, but also middens, going back about 160,000 years. And so I analysed the shells from that site to reconstruct both what the climate was like, but also to reconstruct the season that people collected shells. And so I found that most of the time, people like to collect their mollusks in the winter. But in one particular period, and that was in the last glacial, when the climate was a little bit more arid, more stressful. People tended to collect mollusks throughout the year. Maybe other resources were less available and so they had to focus on mollusks. Or maybe because this particular area is a place that people flocked to because it was less arid than the surrounding regions. So there were so many people there, there was not enough other resources. So they had to basically collect mollusks and eat more mollusks to, to get their protein essentially. So these shells witnessed what could have been the world's first climate refugees, 
160,000 years ago. And so you've got here some tiny little shells that are shaped like cones. Mm -hmm. That's, you know, the size of your pinky fingernail. They're pretty tiny. Can and you still get a sample from them? We can. And these ones are actually from a site in Israel called Ubadia, which is where Homo, probably Homo erectus, moved out of Africa. So we're looking at what the climate and environment was like when Homo erectus left Africa. Wait, so you're telling me this little baggie of shells has shells in it that are potentially as old as what? They're about 1.4 million years old. And I just picked up the bag like it was nothing. You should have like <laughs> slapped my hand. It's fine, there's heaps of them. There's heaps of them. <laughs> what the Duck is presented by me, Anne Jones. The producer is Patria Ladgrove. We produce the program on the lands of the Wadawurrung and Ghana people and Amy's lab is on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Bunurong land. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.